Thank you for joining our PFP podcast. My name is Kevin Igo, Managing Director of PFP, and I'm pleased to be speaking to you today concerning HMRC compliance checks. In my time at PFP, I've now seen over 25,000 tax investigations and disputes of various kinds. And it's more important than ever that agents, accountants know the rights of the taxpayers and HMRC's rights as well, so that they know that everything's going according to plan. First thing you would look at is the opening of the inquiry. So what is the statutory authority for the inquiry? Is it given? If you have a full or an aspect inquiry, then you would expect to see the statutory notice on the letter to the client. And you must see that stamp. If it's not there, you should be asking HMRC exactly what is going on, what are you doing, and what are you looking at. Bear in mind there are inquiry windows. So for self-assessment, for example, other than for a large company or group of companies, the self-assessment inquiry window is one year. So if you file online, say on 31st of January, then the revenue have exactly 12 months to get that notice of inquiry delivered. Now when I say delivered, it's delivered to the client, it's not the accountant's delivery date that's relevant. Now the letter is deemed to be delivered by second-class post unless HMRC can show otherwise. Second-class post is deemed to be delivered four working days after the date of posting. First class is two working days after the date of posting. Occasionally they may try and send you as an agent a copy of a notice by fax. That's fine, all well and good, it still counts as delivered to you, but of course again I stress it's not the agent's delivery date that's relevant, it's the client's delivery date. So if you ever find yourselves with a notice delivered to you on the last day, it's always worth checking with the client to make sure that they've received theirs. If they haven't and theirs is late, then that inquiry notice is invalid. For pay-as-you-earn and VAT visits, they can ask for four years' records. Now that would be the current year and the three preceding years. So be aware when they're asking for information that they can't simply go back as, you know, as, as long as they wish. It's also a good practice to ask HMRC if they can share any risk profiling with you. So are there any particular areas they're concerned about? Now under the litigation and settlement strategy, and that's HMRC's litigation and settlement strategy, that they outline their approach to inquiry work. And as part of the litigation and settlement strategy, they do say that they will work collaboratively with you wherever possible. And that's what you would quote to HMRC. Can you share the risk with me, please? any areas that you're concerned about and we'll see how we can help you in, in, in you know, allaying your concerns. So it's always a very good tactic. For Pajuan and VAT, if they ask for four years records, again it may be worth saying to them, well do you really want four years records, there may be a lot of records, um, are there any concerns, would you perhaps start with one, two years records and see whether anything comes out of that. In practice, I think HMRC do only tend to look at the later years first and only go back if they find something. So really, it can save everybody you know, a certain amount of time by simply asking at the outset, do you really need all this information? If they're claiming a discovery, then they've got to give you the opportunity to explain any apparent discrepancy. And as agents, if the revenue do not give that opportunity, then you should always, without exception, ask them, can they tell you what they've got? 
If they tell you that they can't because it's prejudicial to their inquiries, then I would go back to them and say, I want that in writing, please. Because if later on it turns out that it wasn't prejudicial to their inquiries, then HMRC may end up paying some of the costs involved in the case. And we did have a case where that happened. HMRC would not share the risk. They claimed a discovery. They were asked several times throughout the inquiry, but no, they wouldn't share it. Now, at the end of the inquiry, three years down the line, £7,000 worth of fees, a nil settlement, HMRC eventually relented and said, yes, okay, we will tell you now, um, we had information from a credit agency, but we misunderstood it. Now, as a result of that, the revenue did end up paying a proportion of those fees. So any discovery, the golden rule is always ask what the discrepancy is. If the discrepancy isn't right, or the revenue's information is wrong, then the inquiry cannot proceed on that basis. They can't continue to ask for information. One of the other things I would check uh, and review when they're asking for information is, is the information reasonably required? Now, by reasonably required, I mean, is it reasonably required to check a person's tax affairs? Now, if it's not reasonably required, then they're not entitled to ask for it. And the golden rule there is, if in doubt, ask. So, for example, you know, if they want to check um, motor expenses, do they need the sales ledger? Well, the answer is almost certainly no. It's not reasonably required to check the motor expenses. Do they need to go back so many years? Why is that reasonably required? You also need to think about whether the information is actually cost-effective to provide. Because if it's not cost-effective, then they shouldn't be asking for it. Now, some inspectors I've seen have gone on from that to say, well, if you won't supply the information, then I'll disallow the expense. But that's not how it should work in practice. In practice, if you find that it's not cost-effective, they shouldn't be challenging the item. It's not that they should just simply disallow it. So an example there of being cost-effective, we had a client picked up for inquiry and HMRC asked for a breakdown of the capital allowances claimed. Now this was a sizeable company and the capital allowances went on to over 40 pages of A4. And the inspector had asked for receipts and explanations of every item on those 40-odd pages. Now that would have taken the accountant over a week, all day, every day, to provide that information. So instead we suggested he went back to HMRC and said, look, this isn't cost effective. Do you have any concerns here? Is there some other way that I can you know, allay your concerns? To which the inspector replied, well, I'll tell you what. He said, why don't I just pick six or eight at random and then you supply them? And, and that's what they did. So a fraction of the time, because it, it simply wasn't cost effective. Now, if you're ever asked to supply a whole host of information, you've got to think to yourself, will the inspector actually look at this? In the example I just gave, I would say there's not a cat in hell's chance that the inspector would have trawled through 40-odd pages. Instead, he would just pick some at random and look at those, which is exactly what he did to begin with. We just saved an awful lot of time and money. When they're asking for records, bear in mind they can only ask for what we term the statutory records. So they are the statutory records, the books and records underlying the results of a business. So personal bank statements, for example, are not statutory records. They are personal records. And they can only ask for personal bank statements if they've broken the records. Now when I say breaking records, 
What I mean by that is they've got to show that the records as produced fundamentally do not support what's on the return. It does not mean they have to be perfect. It means they have to fundamentally support what's on the return. And that, that's the question you should ask HMRC. They're asking for personal bank statements. Why do you think they're reasonably required? And do you feel you've broken the records? And if so, where and how? So, for example, if you've got a client who hasn't kept all their till rolls, but they have kept a record of their receipts at the end of every day, that's not ideal. Moving forward, I would always ask them to keep their records, their till rolls. But that in itself does not mean the records are necessarily broken. I would, in those circumstances, still ask HMRC if they could show me where they think there's been an under-declaration of tax. If they can't, I would strongly argue you have not broken those records. Now, when they get hold of personal records, personal bank statements, what they do is they trawl through all of the entries. They look through all of the income figures and all of the outgoing figures. They look at outgoing to see what is there any evidence of, of a trade of some sort. They look through all the income to check that it's come from a declared source. And I have seen many, many adbacks in tax investigations where a taxpayer simply cannot remember what, what an item relates to on a, on a bank statement. And it's good practice, I think, that we ask clients throughout the year to actually annotate their personal bank statements if they can. They may be online, mine are all online, for example, but if they're getting paper copies, annotate them. Maybe if they're online, run them off and annotate them. It will save, potentially, hundreds and thousands of pounds worth of fees and possibly tax as well, being able to answer those, those queries. Now, if you have any adbacks, and tax investigations are tax investigations, of course there can be adbacks from time to time. It's important if anything comes out, whether you discover it or whether the revenue discover it, that you simply don't just acknowledge that there's an adback, but you acknowledge there's an adback and you say why it's arisen and how it's arisen. And if possible, what you're going to do, or the client's going to do, to make sure that it's not repeated in future. Now, you're doing that with penalties in mind. So it is important that you, you get your defence in first. Now, for penalties, there we're looking at whether it's prompted or unprompted. So prompted is where the revenue would say that you had reason to believe that it would be found in any event. Unprompted is where... Well, the opposite of that, they don't think that it would have been discovered in any event. So, for example, if they undertake a full inquiry and something comes out, that's likely, highly, highly likely to be considered prompted. If, however, they're looking at, say, motor expenses, and you're looking through your file at motor expenses, and you notice an error on advertising, and you declare that error, then that error is unprompted, because there's no reason to believe that if the revenue looked at the motor expenses, that they would discover the area concerning advertising. So always think about that. If they want add back, sometimes they can go back over the years and try and extrapolate the figures going back. There you've got to look at the principle of continuity. And by the principle of continuity, I mean, were the circumstances the same going back all of those years? So for example, a client had an investigation, his mileage records weren't very good, and it turned out he had over-declared his mileage records or overclaimed his mileage allowances. So the revenue wanted to go back six years. However, the guy only learnt to drive two years ago. So clearly he couldn't have overclaimed for the earlier four years because he simply couldn't drive. So that's the principle of continuity. 
Now, as far as penalties are concerned, you need to look at how you can mitigate the penalties. And you mitigate them by what they term telling, helping, and giving. So it's the revenue version of a Disney movie. So if you tell, help, give, cooperate, in essence, then they will give you penalty mitigation. And the mitigation can be quite significant. If you have a penalty as a result of a failure to take reasonable care, then you may be able to get that penalty suspended. Now, suspended penalties are just that. They're suspended, they're not charged for a period of around two years, is, is more common, and at that stage, if you paid all your tax on time, you kept everything up to date, then you can find that the penalty just drops out of charge. If you don't keep everything up to date, you don't pay your tax, you submit your tax return late, you will find that that penalty gets released and becomes collectible. But the penalty regime is all about behaviour. So innocent error, failure to take reasonable care and deliberate. And in extreme cases, deliberate and concealed. Now if I touch on deliberate and concealed first, deliberate and concealed means they've got to have done something extra. They've got to have taken a step. So it's not, for example, simply the existence of an overseas bank account. That in itself would not dictate that it's deliberate and concealed. What would be deliberate and concealed is if, for example, they've got false invoices. That type of thing would be concealed. And that does happen from time to time. So you think about the behaviour, and when you're acknowledging addbacks of any sort, this is what you have in mind, is the penalties. And also, of course, the years of assessment, because those two are based on the behaviour of the taxpayer. So, for example, innocent error, the revenue can go back and assess up to four years. A failure to take reasonable care, they can assess up to six years. If it's deliberate, they can assess up to 20 years. So there's obviously quite an incentive there to try and get the, the banding in the right area for the, for the clients. Now, because of the years of assessment, there's obviously uh, at times uh, a difference of opinion between clients, their accountants, and also the Inland Revenue, or HMRC. Now, you quite often have to stick to your guns with HMRC, um, but it's always worth remembering that the onus is on HMRC to show why something falls in a particular banding. They should encourage you to get the penalty to be suspended, but more often than not, it's the taxpayer or his agent that needs to ask for that. Now, if there is a failure to take reasonable care, then yet you can get it suspended. You need to put smart conditions on it, so specific, measurable, achievable, realistic and timious, so it's got to have a set time span on it. Throughout an inquiry, the revenue may also ask to have a meeting with your client. Now, if they want a meeting, it's important to understand firstly that they don't have a right to meet the client. Not anywhere under the Taxes Act, anywhere does it say they have a right to meet a client. And it can't be held as a lack of cooperation if a client doesn't want to meet HMRC. There will be people that, for one reason or another, you wouldn't want to put in front of HMRC. It's not that they've done anything wrong, but they just may, for example, get nervous. They may appear shifty. You may have a client who's got a very short fuse and you may genuinely be concerned he's going to punch the inspector on the nose. That sort of person I wouldn't let near the revenue. So bear that in mind and if you are going to have a meeting with the revenue you need to think about where, when and who attends. I would always want to know in advance from HMRC's side who's attending from HMRC and what their roles are in the inquiry. 
you should make sure in the meeting that they stick to those roles. They don't extend. So if, for example, you have someone there who's an observer, then that observer should not speak other than to say good morning. And if they do speak, you would be entitled to step in and say, no, excuse me, I understood you were an observer. You now seem to be taking part in the investigation. You know, what's changed? Brief the client and what they can expect. And when I say brief the client, let them know the sort of questions they will be asked if they have anything to disclose. They may be asked things about their personal affairs that they, they won't be ready for. Now, when we're looking at personal tax and, and personal tax affairs, if a business has been investigated, there has to be a reason why they extend out from the business to the personal affairs. It's not normal that they would automatically ask about means, for example, unless they have any concerns over means. So it's important we don't let the inquiry be extended in that manner. When it takes place, it has to be at a reasonable time, acceptable to, to all concerned, and where they don't have a right to visit the business premises. If you prefer to have the meeting at your offices, then so be it. Uh, the least popular one would be HMRC's offices, because obviously they're on home turf there, and it could make the client feel a little bit uncomfortable. They cannot go to the domestic dwelling under any circumstances. An agenda is always a good idea to ask for, and when I ask for an agenda, I'd like it to be as detailed as possible, covering off exactly the sort of areas they want to discuss. And I would go through that agenda with the client beforehand. Following the meeting, I would always ask for meeting notes. I'd review those meeting notes to make sure there are no obvious or glaring errors or omissions, or anything that's in there that wasn't actually said. Uh, but above and beyond that, I would not sign them either. You know, I, I would never recommend you sign a meeting note. Um, there is no purpose to signing that meeting note, and HMRC cannot ins insist that it that it's done. If you need payment terms, the client needs payment terms, it's good practice to agree the instalments with the inspector who's carrying out the investigation. It's easier to get instalments agreed with that inspector than it is a collector. Now, collectors are just that. They're there to collect tax. They're not there to make friends. They're not there to agree things. They're there to collect tax. And if it passes out to an outside debt agency, then you really are in trouble because they are going to be quite inflexible as a rule. It's also worth bearing in mind if a client's held to have done anything deliberate and potential lost revenue to the exchequer is £25,000 or above, then a client could potentially be named and shamed if he's held to have done anything deliberate and he doesn't get full penalty mitigation. Now I've heard that the revenue are looking to extend that, so even if you do get full penalty mitigation, you can be named and shamed, but not currently as we record this today. So dealing with HMRC can be difficult at times, but it's not impossible. No, it's not rocket science. It is important that we just know the rights of our clients and indeed you know, what we can do about it. You know, they cannot simply continue to ask for information, for example. They cannot extend an inquiry without having grounds to do so. A failure to collect an amount of tax doesn't in itself allow, allow them to uh, extend an inquiry. So I hope you found that useful. If anybody does have any queries following this podcast, please feel free to send them in. Um, to, to us at PFP, and meanwhile, I hope to speak to you all again soon.